What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. Africa is not a color. It's a place. I hate it when people treat me like that. I do some shows where they bring me out like this. Next comedian is coming from Africa. They make it sound like a guy in leopard skin is going to come running on the stage. He'll be like, Gimbawe, yo. Let me tell you monkey jokes, huh? And it's not like that. I mean, I do have good monkey jokes, but that's not the point. That's not what I'm saying. That's Trevor Noah, of course. Now, one of the hottest acts in late-night television as host of The Daily Show. In that clip, he was telling one of his first jokes ever on American television in a stand-up appearance on David Letterman's Late Show. Noah was not looking for a career in late-night television in America that night, but Late Night found him. Producers at The Daily Show decided they had to show Noah's act to the then-host and transformative late-night star, John Stewart. John knew what he was seeing virtually instantly. He got just one joke into Noah's Letterman performance, as executive producer Jen Flans recalls. He goes, yeah, 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 shut it off. Shut it. We're, we're good. That guy's, get him. He's going to take my chair one day. And so he did. Trevor Noah has already left a deep mark on Late Night as a host not only of color, which has been a scandalously rare development in Late Night, but also as a host with the unique perspective of growing up about as far from America as is geographically possible, South Africa. Still, one aspect of Trevor's story is not uncommon. He got his big career break standing up, doing a five-minute set of jokes mid-stage on a network late-night show. Throughout its history, late-night TV has loomed as a golden door for generations of stand-up comedians. Billy Crystal, Jerry Seinfeld, Ellen DeGeneres, Robin Williams, Gary Shandling, Jim Gaffigan, Jay Leno, and David Letterman. And more recently, names like Roy Wood Jr., Dulce Sloan, Tig Notaro, Ali Wong, and Dusty Slay. What we're talking about here is late-night TV as a launching pad for the careers of stand-up comedians. Walk through the curtains of a late-night show. Stand on the mark. Deliver an exhaustively polished stand-up set. Slay an audience. And you're on your way. In many cases, on the way to something truly big. A busy club career. A TV series. Maybe a movie career. Maybe even a late-night show of your own. I'm Bill Carter, and welcome back to Behind the Desk, the story of late night. It's almost like uh, skydiving. You don't want to go, but once you're out of that plane, you you can't not go. <laughs> you know, and once the curtain opens, and, and then you're walking, and... You, it looks like it's as casual as hell, and in your head, you're, you're screaming like you're jumping out of a plane. Ray Romano, who broke out first on Carson and then hugely on appearances with David Letterman, created and starred in the mega-hit network sitcom Everybody Loves Raymond. It all started when he walked through those curtains. Most of the really big comic names of the past three decades strapped themselves aboard the show business bullet train 
in a performance on The Tonight Show when it was hosted by Johnny Carson. By no accident, Carson's tenure coincided with a golden age of stand-up comedy. A generation mainly raised on watching Carson inspired the comedy boom of the 1970s and 80s and beyond. Before Carson created that sort of regular showcase for young comics, the path to becoming a breakout performer in comedy had fewer, stodgier, or mostly less welcoming avenues to success. Some comics did get exposure on Jack Parr's Tonight Show, established 50s comics like Jonathan Winters and Mort Saul. But that show was not known as the place for unknowns to break out in comedy. Carson changed the game. How important was it for a comic to land a spot on The Tonight Show? Byron Allen has become a mogul in the entertainment world, but he started as a stand-up, and he knows the date that truly marks the start of his career. For comedians, when you do The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson, you have two birthdays. You have the, the day you were born and the, the day you did your first Tonight Show. So I was born April 22nd, 1961. That's my physical birth. And then my showbiz birth was May 17th, 1979. I was 18 years old and I did The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. And he introduced me and uh, my life changed forever. Byron's devotion to Carson and that first appearance is underscored by his most cherished show business souvenir. You can't miss it. It's hanging on the wall in his elegant L.A. office. A giant picture frame containing the tweedy jacket he wore when he walked through that curtain to center stage 42 years ago. I cannot fit in that jacket, and no longer do I have a really cool afro. But, but I will tell you this. I remember as if it were, it were yesterday. It's like the, when you see the jerseys at, uh, at the Hall of Fame. Ah, right. Yeah. You know, the, here, here's, the, here's what he wore. There that's right. Is. You know, that's what I think every comedian should frame that jacket. I don't know any others who frame the actual jacket they wore, but every single comic I have talked to can remember the date, the time, and what it felt like the night of their first late-night appearance. David Letterman described for me his emotions after he killed in his first shot on with Johnny Carson. I was in a different dimension, Dave said. It's like West Point graduation and your hat's in the air. Exciting, yes. Equally intimidating. Johnny had a, a big band and was really loud at the time. When that band stops playing, your heart stops at the same time. Jimmy Brogan, a career stand-up and one-time head writer for Jay Leno's monologue, had the typical cardiac event in his first Carson appearance. Another successful veteran stand-up, Brian Regan, saw his entire show business life flash before his eyes. When the curtain opens, it feels like it's a million miles away. So you have to walk out to the mark. And during the run-through, they say there's two marks. There's Johnny Carson's mark, and then there's everybody else's mark. Don't stand on Johnny Carson's mark. When he introduces you and you walk through the curtain, that's all I'm thinking about is don't stand on his mark because that's the end of show business. You know, <laughs> The floor so you, opens up and you just... <laughs> yeah, the, the floor opens up and, you, and you're just, you go away to oblivion and you're never seen again, you know? So how does a struggling, maybe a little self-deluded, but ever-determined young comic make it to this kind of life-altering and threatening moment? Again... Carson began the process. 
one that set a standard that remains mostly intact today, even accounting for the technological advances and how easy it is now to try out material and see if it works. In fact, in the era of YouTube and TikTok videos, all of the current crop of late-night network shows have been booking more comics than ever before. Most comics still get a chance on late-night shows after a booker, a producer by title, often a former stand-up himself or herself, sees them in some club somewhere, plying their trade while trying to maintain the attention of rowdy patrons under the influence of alcohol. No producer with this unique assignment was more famous than a man named Jim McCauley. McCauley scouted comics for The Carson Tonight Show for 15 years and made comics' lives miserable the entire time. Comics big and small, from Ray Romano and Paul Reiser to Rita Rudner and Jack Cohn, all have stories of Jim McCauley's often idiosyncratic approach to their acts and how it may have driven them nuts, but it also helped make their careers. Imagine the pressure on the comics in a club when somebody passed the word, Macaulay's in the house. Carol Liefer has had a successful career as a stand-up herself and as a writer for Seinfeld, the show, not the comic. She broke out as a stand-up in more than 30 appearances on David Letterman's NBC show. Before that, there were many times trying to impress Jim McCauley. When people auditioned for The Tonight Show and a guy like McCauley came in, there was such tension between the comics, you know. I remember one time auditioning for The Tonight Show and a female kind of rival of mine was in the audience talking to Macaulay while I was on. You know, people would do that kind of like <laughs> intrigue to kind of propel themselves. So um, those audition nights were very, you know, were very fraught with a lot of, uh, a lot of anxiety. Anxiety? Craziness? The dream of the Carson appearance became so much the driving force for comics of that era that somebody actually came up with the idea of kidnapping Johnny Carson, the ransom being the most valuable prize any comic could imagine, a stand-up set on The Tonight Show. I don't make any false moves. I'd hate to have to do anything drastic. Now, if everything works out, you should be out of here by the very latest 12, 1230. Well, maybe 1. 1.15, the very latest. Okay, the kidnapping comic in this case was Rupert Pupkin, and he was a fictional character in the 1982 movie The King of Comedy. The film was directed by the great Martin Scorsese and inevitably starred Robert De Niro as the sad sack Rupert. For the Johnny Carson part, Scorsese asked Johnny Carson himself to play the role. Johnny declined. In his place, the character became Jerry Langford, and the actor became Jerry Lewis. Rupert's plot does get him a shot on the late-night show, where he's able to deliver ten minutes of hacky but still kind of funny comedy before he gets arrested. Jerry Langford, meanwhile, remains a star and presumably goes on giving new comics their big shot. I'm just trying to make people laugh. And how's that going for you? <laughs> That is Joaquin Phoenix in his Oscar-winning role in the film Joker. In that film, the Joker, in his makeup, 
winds up getting his own chance to make a name for himself in Late Night. And talk about full circle. The Carson-style host is played by Robert De Niro. The homage to the king of comedy is impossible to miss. And so is the inference that Rupert may have been able to use that first memorable late-night appearance to climb all the way up into the host's chair. Of course, as every comic who's ever performed in late-night knows, it helps if you wind up killing. There's even a character in the movie, played by the comic Mark Maron, who is in effect the doorkeeper, who decides whether a comic can get on the show. And we know who that sounds like. Jim McCauley was the doorkeeper there for the, you know, he was the talent booker. Jimmy Brogan describes the typical comic's journey from making a name in clubs to getting the attention of a demanding booker like McCauley to all the anxiety and heartburn that usually followed. I'm in New York one night, and my act was always talking to the audience in very free form. So I'm at the Improv one night on a Saturday night, and uh, Chris Albrecht, who was the manager of the club at that point. And later went on to run HBO. HBO, yes, (laughs) yes. And uh, he said, oh, there's a guy here I want you to meet. And it was Jim McCauley from The Tonight Show. And he said to me, uh, oh, you're you're very funny, very complimentary. And said, "Uh, I'm going to say for the second show, can you put together five minutes of just jokes without talking to the audience? And I said, uh, no, no, I can't do that. (laughs) And, uh, And I saw him go out to Ninth Avenue, get in a cab, and I just saw my hopes of doing the Tonight Show just drive up Ninth Avenue. That was it. I was, I thought, oh. I well, why did you say no? I thought, I can't just all of a sudden put a monologue together. I've never worked that way. So that was 1979. And I would see Jim McCauley uh, out here in the clubs. And in 1982, Jay Leno took me aside at the comedy store and said, you know, you're, you're funny enough to do the Tonight Show. You should put together five minutes of stuff. So for two years, every set I opened, you know, hundreds of sets I opened with 10 minutes of material. And I just bombed with this stuff. And my manager said, no, you're not ready. So I went back to New York and I did 52 more sets of the same 10 minutes every night and came back and said, it's bulletproof now. (laughs) And they brought Jim McCauley in and uh, he saw the 10 minutes and said, you can do any of that five on the show which turns out was really unusual because usually he would pick through the material and sometimes change the order and stuff. He said, you can do any of that uh, 10 minutes on the show. And it was great, you know. So I I took the best five, worked on it. So the night before I'm supposed to do the show, my managers come in to see the set, you know, the the five minutes. And uh, they see the set down at the improv and they go, we think the other five minutes is better. (laughs) And I go, oh, what? No, no. So I said, okay. So we go up to the comedy store, my last set to run the set before the big Carson show, and I run the other five minutes. And then after that, they go, maybe you're right. It should be the fun. So I'm going, oh, Lord. Brogan, at least, had a full stamp of approval from Macaulay. Many comics remember that the booker was either heavy-handed, editing their acts, moving jokes around, or inscrutable impossible to figure out. We'll hear all about that version of getting past the scrutiny of Jim McCauley when we return to Behind the Desk after a short message. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. 
Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support, your sleep number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature-balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protest that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. And now back to the memorable and sometimes maddening experience of a comic trying to make it past Johnny Carson's Praetorian Guard for stand-up acts. Jim McCauley. Brian Regan will never forget his experience. I drive on the lot. Talk about surreal, you know, and I said, hey, my name's, you know, I'm at that gate. Hey, my name's Brian Regan. I'm here to see Jim McCauley. And they said, okay, your parking space is right over there. I'm like, I already have a parking space. You know, <laughs> I parked, I walked in and he said, hey, I enjoyed your set the other night. Uh, I'd like to talk to you about it. I'm like, yeah, okay. You know, he goes, uh, I know I enjoyed it, but I don't really remember it. And he said, can you refresh my memory about the bits that you did? And I don't know, is he joking? And he goes, no, I'm serious. Can you refresh my memory and replay your, your bits? So I don't know, does he want me to do the jokes the way they are? Or does he just want like a bullet point? (laughs) to help him remember. So I have to make these split-second decisions. So I said, oh, well, the first joke was about uh, saying uh, the expression you too at the wrong time. And he just stares at me. And so I'm thinking, well, maybe he doesn't remember the bit. So I said, you know, it's like when you're getting out of a cab at the airport and the driver goes, hey, have a nice flight. And you go, you too, you too, in case you ever fly. He's just looking at me like, now I'm thinking, maybe he's got the wrong comedian. Maybe, you know, he goes... What did you do after that? And I'm like, oh, my gosh. I'm flop sweating, you know? I did the second joke. He's just staring at me. Not a smile, not a smirk, nothing. And then he goes, okay, what'd you do? What was your third joke? And I'm thinking, I- I'm the wrong guy. He's think- he-, he saw somebody else who he liked, and now he's all confused. And so I do the third joke. I do the fourth joke. I do all the jokes. And I'm just sitting there. I probably lost 15 pounds and and sweat while I'm sitting on the other side of this desk. And he like he just looks at me, and I'm expecting him to go, "Would you please get out of my office?" You know. And he said, uh, "Huh? Hmm. Okay." He goes, "I might be uh, that. That might be the kind of set we'd like on the show." 
And I'm like, oh, God, you know, like you, you could have given me an indication with a smirk somewhere along the way, you know. But he, he still doesn't say that I have the show. So I don't know what's going on. I don't know if he likes it. Does he not like it? He goes, well, thanks for coming in, Brian. And I go, you're, you're welcome. And I get up and walk out. I'm all confused. I have no idea what just happened. I, I, I leave his office. I go over to the elevator and I'm numb. I'm numb. Like, I don't know what just happened. Am I kicked out of show business? Am I going to be a star? And he comes out into the hallway. I, I've got the down button lit up. And he goes, uh, hey. And I go, yeah. He goes, how do you spell your name? Uh, Brian, B-R-I-A-N. Regan is R-E-G-A-N. And my, my voice is trembling as I'm saying it. Like, I feel he's going to go back in and say, don't ever let him in here again, you know? <laughs> so he goes, uh, okay, I wanted to get it right for TV Guide. And I go, oh, okay. And then he walks back into his office, and I'm like, TV Guide? What? What? I, I guess I got the show, you know? So that's how I found out that I was getting The Tonight Show. I was getting out of the cab at the airport, and the driver goes, hey, uh, have a nice flight. You too. <laughs> you too, you have a nice flight too. In case you ever fly someday. Don't everybody look at me, I'm a moron. Between the thrill of the booking and the appearance itself, expectations could run rampant. The five-minute set was worked on like a vintage watch. Every moving part tinkered with. Many comics brought their friends with them to the show for support. For Jimmy Brogan, that chiefly meant bringing along a close friend that he had already accompanied on his own first Carson appearance. But you had gone with Jerry Seinfeld when he he, he was his first time? Yes. So, yes. so you, you did this the favor for him. You were already his supporter when he was. Uh, yes, and uh, we trained for it. Not only did I go with him, but we would go down to Fairfax High School and run on the track every day like it was a world championship boxing match we were training for. <laughs> we wanted to be in shape. We wanted to look good on the show. And so we would... Uh, we would make sure we exercised and ran the set every night in the club and stuff. So I was, uh, I think, at every one of Jerry's uh, appearances. Even all that training could not hold back the onslaught of nerves. Biggest show in television, millions of viewers, parents watching, every friend from the block, you know they'll all be watching. Carol Liefer remembered her father's pride when her first Tonight Show appearance was due and how insistent he was that it could not be missed. You know, and then it was really seeing things <laughs> in real time because that was your exposure. I joke around how my dad, you know, in 1982 to watch me on The Tonight Show went to Crazy Eddie and bought a VCR for like $1,000 <laughs> to be able to watch me. <laughs> $1,000 VCR. But anyway, you know... Um, but, and then was $1,000 was a big deal back then. Hey, $1,000 even today. Come on. <laughs> My right people. How intense was this whole experience? Comics, even some who went into their first late night shot with long experience in clubs, told me stories of hands seizing up in the dressing room or forgetting jokes mid-set or walking off in a dream state like the whole thing hadn't really happened. I had no idea how bright the lights would be. And in the middle of my set, I'm wearing a sport coat, which I generally didn't wear on stage in the comedy clubs. And I've got my hands under my sport coat behind my back. I'm going, I've never had my hands like this the whole time. 
Jimmy Brogan had the full out-of-body experience on his first Tonight Show. I finished and thought, I must have skipped something. I must have jumped over because it went so fast. Yeah. I just, oh, I, I, I probably left the whole middle of it out. And it turned out I didn't, but it went I was so in such a dream state that... But you did can't you feel it, it was going well? Or could you not even tell? No, I, it was. And on my third joke, there was one joke, and I can't remember what it is even now, that was the weakest in the set. And I, I, I knew if that joke went well, you know, I had a good chance for the rest of the set if I could just get the words out. And that got a laugh. And I actually said to the audience, whew, that's the first time that joke's ever gotten a laugh. <laughs> and as much as that seemed like, oh, I, I was probably in huge trouble, it, it broke that fourth wall with the audience. Mm -hmm. it, it made me human rather than a guy just reciting jokes. Yeah. You know, they had a little moment to see into my mind, into my soul there, and it, it helped the set, actually. And Johnny gives you the okay. Johnny gave me the okay. And off you go, backstage. And your friends are there. And right? my friends are there, and, yes. And Jerry Seinfeld. And what do they say to you? Do they say you killed? Uh, yeah, everyone's always very complimentary afterwards, yeah. yeah. What a sweet story. Brogan and his comic pals wound up taking a photo together that night, gathered around the parking space right outside the studio with its prominent placard reading, Johnny Carson. So everybody else knew not to park there. Oh, sure. Fun night for everybody. And then there was Brian Regan. I'm doing my set, and I'm so nervous that my mouth starts drying up like it had never dried up in my whole life, like I'd never experienced it. The act of being a stand-up is inherently a battle of confidence versus stark terror. It is an entirely solo adventure. Your mind and a microphone against an audience who may or may not be inclined to laugh at what you say. Nobody's on that stage with you to hold you up. If your knees go weak, there is nowhere to hide. And your success or failure is on display for everyone to see and hear at regular intervals. You get laughs or you don't. In stand-up, you're a singles figure skater. Make the jumps or land on your ass. Except that the rink the crowd feels sorry for the skater splayed out across the ice in feathers and bows. At a comedy club or on TV, not so much. Brian Regan knew he could skate. He was completely prepared for every jump. Then he walked out on the Tonight stage and started to talk and realized something was wrong. After like two jokes, I have no moisture in my mouth whatsoever. Like I can't, I can't even talk. And there's no stool with water that you can sip. So I'm thinking I need to lick my lips because I can't talk and my lips are sticking to my teeth as I'm talking. And I, I'm having this internal debate while I'm doing my set going, I need to lick my lips and my teeth. And the other part of me is going, you can't do that. You're on national television to look horrible. And then the other side of me is going, yeah, but you can't talk. And I'm going, I don't care if I can't talk. That'll look stupid if you're licking your lips on national TV. That, this is going on while I'm trying to do comedy. <laughs> and then it gets to the point where I literally can't speak. My mouth is so dry. So I go, all right, I have to lick my teeth here, you know? So I lick my teeth. 
And as soon as I do, my brain goes, oh, that looked horrible. I, I felt like my tongue had come out of my mouth and like I was combing my hair with my tongue, you know, like, and then the other part of me is go, was going, you had to, you had to, you, you can't talk, you know? So I finished my set. It, it seems to go pretty well, but uh, it, it's so surreal. I don't know whether it was good or bad. Everything was just, I, I didn't know what was going on. Like, I felt like, like I had just been in a 15, you know, round heavyweight boxing match, you know, and I'm like, I'm barely standing. I finish my set. I come back through the curtain. Macaulay comes up and says, uh, hey, nice job. And I go, thank you. And he goes, listen, Bob Hope might not get here in time. He goes, so we might throw you back out there on the panel. And I'm like, okay. He goes, we don't have time to set anything up. He goes, Johnny will ask you about being from Miami and you be ready to go into five minutes of clean material. And I'm like, oh, okay. And he just turns around and walks away. And I'm like, I've had 10 years to work on my first five minutes. Now I have 30 (laughs) seconds to prepare my next five minutes. So sure enough, Bob Hope doesn't show up. Johnny Carson gives me the most gracious reintro. You know, you feel like you're strapping yourself into the top of a rocket that's about to go to the the moon. You're like, where, how am I here? You know, he said, you know, he said, Hey, nice job out there. The audience really seemed to like you or whatever. And I said, Oh, thank you. You know? And as I'm doing this, I'm realizing it's potentially life changing, you know? So I'm nervous. And he said, um, so you're from Miami, huh? And I did have a joke about being from Miami. It's about listening to the news in Spanish, you know, like listening to Spanish news and how every once in a while they throw in an English word. And, and he laughed. He said, uh, you know, when you first get started in comedy, uh, you probably play some rough gigs. Uh, what's that like getting started? And I don't, I didn't have a story, you know, I didn't have a, a story ready to go into. And I'm like, uh, well, so I just told this true story about performing at a, a club in the South. And I said, uh, I said, well, one time I showed up at this place like in Mississippi and we met the owner before the show. And he said, uh, we ain't never had no uh, comedians here before, but uh, <laughs> we're going to throw you on tonight and see what happens. And the audience laughed, but I had no follow up. Like I didn't have that was it. That was my whole story, if you even want to call it a story. And, and I'm thinking if Johnny Carson says, well, what happened, then that's the end of my career. And instead, he looked at me and kind of sensed that I was done and said, ah, oh, that's great. He goes, I know what you're talking about. He goes, because when I first started, you know, you'd play. And he started talking about clubs that he played. And I'm thinking, this guy just saved me, man. This guy just mm-hmm. threw me a life preserver and nobody even knows it. Yeah. <laughs> nobody even knows what what his skill set just accomplished here. And it was A tremendous experience for me. I have talked to many comics whose memory of their first time on Late Night brings them to tears. The emotion is legit. The experience is like no other in a comic's career. And the memories leave many comics moved in ways that surprise them. Jimmy Brogan was with Jerry Seinfeld for Jerry's final appearance with Carson in 1992. Jerry and I couldn't bear to leave. The show had meant so much to us and, you know, and 
had made our careers being on that show, and particularly Jerry was now in his own sitcom, and and uh, it was doing great, and we couldn't leave. So uh, Jerry said, let's walk out on the set, and we sat there for about a half hour, sitting in, uh, Jerry sat in Johnny's seat, and I sat in the guest chair, and then we switched, and we just talked about how much that show meant to us. There's nothing that you can really say to, uh, to, to thank you for all the times that you've had me back here and, uh, and enabled me to... Not every comic has this misty-eyed memory of experiences on stage with Johnny Carson. That was especially true if you happened to be a female comic. Carol Liefer had to audition 12 times before getting a booking on The Tonight Show. I do think The Tonight Show was very old school and boys club in feeling that women weren't as funny as men. I do feel like there was that kind of uh, behind the scenes attitude. To me, uh, they saw women comics, I felt, as a little second class comedy citizens. Another top woman comic of that generation felt completely blocked by Jim McCauley's gatekeeping at The Tonight Show. Here's Elaine Boozler. Every time I went on for the bookers, they'd say, no, no, he's not going to like it. No, no, no. So unbeknownst to me, um, Helen Reddy was going to guest host the next Monday. Helen said, I'm guest hosting. Should I put Elaine Boozler on? The producer suggested Helen do just that. After all, Helen Reddy was known for the feminist anthem I am woman, hear me roar. Here was a female comic ready to roar. Elaine made Helen Reddy proud. Finally given a chance, she destroyed. And even without the Carson stamp, her life changed virtually overnight. That was The Tonight Show. If you didn't have The Tonight Show, you did not have a career in comedy in any meaningful way. In terms of volume of comic breakthroughs and the magnitude of the names, there's never been a launch vehicle like Carson's Tonight Show before or since. But people like Jim Gaffigan, Marsha Warfield, Mario Joyner, and Dave Chappelle owed some of their subsequent success to appearances with David Letterman. But no comic owed more to Letterman than the one who became inextricably linked with him for the rest of their careers. Jay Leno. Jay hadn't shined in his early work on Tonight and was more or less banished from the show for years. Letterman was looking to differentiate his 12.30 show from Carson's, and being a genuine fan of Leno, he brought Jay on as a frequent guest. My wife's cat ran away for three days. She sends me out in the middle of the night driving around looking for the cat, okay? <laughs> like the cat's gonna stick to the main road. <laughs> Well, I was trying to get to Philly. I think the Jersey Pike is his best bet. Jay appeared more than 40 times, enough to convince NBC to install him as Carson's permanent guest host and Letterman's forever late-night rival. Okay, with Carson now long gone, where do the talented young comics go to plant a career flag in late-night? Surprisingly, they have plenty of options which we'll talk about when we return with more of Behind the Desk after another brief message. Hi. 
Hacks is coming back, and so is the official Hacks podcast. With us, your hosts. I'm Paul W. Downs. I'm Jen Statsky. And I'm Lucia Agnello. We're the creators and showrunners. Each week on the podcast, we'll break down the new episodes. We'll also have special guests, cast and crew from the show like Hannah Einbinder and Gene Smart. Hacks Season 3 is available to stream now on Max. Be sure to listen wherever you get your podcasts or listen directly on Max. When Conan O'Brien took over The Tonight Show from Jay Leno in 2009, briefly, he and his producers made a commitment to revive the Carson tradition of Tonight as a showcase for hot young comics. Conan maintained that commitment after his split with NBC and his shift to the TBS cable channel. The result has been a consistent run of fresh comic voices on with Conan, many of whom have capitalized on the exposure as comics from the previous generation did with Carson. Conan appearances have advanced the careers of comics like Tig Notaro, Rory Scovel, and Tim Minchin, the brilliant Australian comic composer who made his American debut with Conan. It became sort of a specialty for Conan's late-night show, introducing international comedians. Included on a very long list, Gad Elmala who was from Casablanca, Morocco, but became a big star in France. Actually, big enough that his Netflix special, Huge in France, was completely accurate. Yeah, I'm from France. Uh, every time I say to Americans I'm from France, I don't know why they come up with random weird comments. <laughs> like, oh, you're from France. Actually, last year, my cousin went to Italy. <laughs> I don't know what to tell them, right? It's... <laughs> That's another country, right? <laughs> Rose Matafeo was from New Zealand. Mohanad El-Shiki was from Benghazi, Libya. All have thrived in America after being on with Conan. Pete Holmes wrote his Conan work to an HBO series, Crashing. Reggie Watts toured with Conan and then made eight appearances on the show with him. Now he's the band leader for James Corden's late-night show. He is one of many black comics who have broken through to wider recognition as stand-up acts after being welcomed on Conan's late-night show. Others include Ron Funches, now an in-demand voice actor, Dion Cole, who also wrote for Conan, and Roy Wood Jr. and Dulce Sloan, who are now both Daily Show correspondents. A list like that may sound surprising because comics and their managers have successfully sought alternatives to late-night TV as places where a hot stand-up set can get you noticed and maybe paid for doing bigger things. The expectation is that a buzzy YouTube video or a quick bit on TikTok can do the job for an emerging comics career. Even a veteran like Brian Regan thinks so. There's so much content out there in so many different forms. You can get comedy to the people through podcasts. You can do it through YouTube clips. You can do it through all these different ways that I guess it's possible to, to do a, ton, a Tonight Show or a Kimmel or something and break through that way. It just doesn't seem to be as prevalent as it used to be. That's a valid argument, made more convincing when a somewhat obscure comic like Sarah Cooper can ignite and go viral. During the torrent of attention that Donald Trump was receiving on late-night shows, Sarah Cooper's Trump impressions were noticed. 
and even scored her a substitute hosting gig one night on Jimmy Kimmel Live. Here's the thing. The late night shows are still very much in the hunt for breakout comics. All the major late night shows have their own versions of Jim McCauley, and they are still out trawling the clubs for the next Gary Shandling or Roseanne. Before late night became limited to the host's vacation home during the pandemic, comics were getting booked more often on late night shows than they had been in years. According to a piece in Variety, stand-up acts have doubled on late night shows in the past five years. Occasionally, these bookers will look at a tape or see somebody intriguing on YouTube or TikTok, but almost always, they want to see the comic perform in front of a breathing, living audience because that's what they'll face in a TV studio. So, can a star still step forward in a hot late-night experience? It's happened. Jimmy Kimmel, who, like the other hosts, still pushes to get new comic voices on his ABC show, agrees it may not be quite the same as the Carson era when six or seven million people were watching across the nation, but funny people can still get noticed and generate multi-millions of hits online. It still does happen. Like Tiffany Haddish, I remember, was not very well known, and she was a second guest, and she was on my show, and she told a story about the Will and Jada Pinkett Smith and a Groupon that um, she took them on. She took them on a Groupon trip of some, like a little, uh, what do they call those things where you slide over over the canopy of trees? Uh, zip line. A zip a line, zip line. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. And that thing became a huge video within like 36 hours and um, really was like a, a big thing for, for her career. That part of the formula is the same. But what about the nervousness the flop sweat, the dry mouth, the make-or-break tension that left comics weak-kneed in their dressing rooms. Does anybody feel that anymore? Of course they do. The most stress I experience as a talk show host is when a comic is making their television debut on my show because I so badly want it to go well for them um, that I am like I feel like I'm uh, a nervous parent for six minutes. It's pretty much as it ever was. Get booked, walk out on that stage, and do some damage. That's all it takes. I'm Bill Carter. Be sure to listen and follow Behind the Desk, the story of late night, wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please rate and review us. We'd love to know what you think. Behind the Desk, the story of late night, is a production of CNN Audio and CNN Original Series. It's executive produced by me, Bill Carter, as well as Johnny Kalangas, David Brady, and Kate Harrison Carmen. Megan Marcus is the executive producer of CNN Audio. For CNN Original Series, special thanks to Molly Harrington and Kira Bodengolagorski. The producers are Mark Malkoff and Johnny Kalangas. Our editor is Nick Pruer, and our engineer is Neil McDonald. Matt McClellan is our line producer. Special thanks to Amy Antellis, Ashley Lusk, Courtney Coop, John Ehler, and of course, to all the great people who share their experiences and insights with us. 
quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.